I'm Nick Harcourt and welcome to another episode of The Sound of Success, the podcast where we talk with movers, shakers and just plain cool people about music. John Lloyd is an English television and radio comedy producer and writer. His television work includes Not the Nine O'Clock News, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Spitting Image, Black Adder, and QI. He's also the author of the book, 1,411 Quite Interesting Facts to Knock You Sideways, a collaboration with John Mitchinson and James Harkin, and is currently the presenter of BBC Radio 4's The Museum of Curiosity. John, welcome, and thanks for taking the time to speak with me. Hey, Nick, it's lovely to be here. So I've got a couple of questions that I got lined up for you before we jump into the music part of this. But just before we started recording, you were telling me about a fascinating weekend you had in Ireland where you met 30 cousins, um, half of them who you didn't know or a lot of them you didn't know. And you started to tell me this amazing story about your family background and history. And I thought, why don't we start with that? Because it just sounds absolutely fascinating. Yeah, well, I literally just got off the plane from this extraordinary weekend organized by two of my cousins, uh, and we all stayed in what used to be the family stately home. I mean, we're not toffs these days, but back in the day, the the Lloyds were... Once upon a time. Yeah, they were landowning Irish Protestants, Anglo-Irish Protestants, and one of the places we went to see this weekend, a bunch of us, was a place called Burr Castle, which is a fascinating uh, place, wonderful grounds. It's got um, a huge wooden telescope in it, which was built in, I think, 1845 by a guy called the Earl of Ross. And the second Earl of Ross married a Lloyd. So we Mm. were, she was a Countess of Ross. So, uh, and we met the present Countess and Earl bumbling around the gift shop, you know, so it was like, and we got him free, Nick, because (laughs) because we're Lloyd's. (laughs) <laughs> and that, that that so that goes back to free tickets because in the 1740s one of my rallies married an earl wow so if a, if a lloyd ever turns up at the gift shop you get free in this was such fun anyway so the story that my family always was told was that um the last lloyd who owned the house well no second to last lloyd was general john hardris lloyd who after whom i'm named and he was a kind of General Melchick, if you know Blackadder, the General Melchick character from Blackadder. So he was a general in the First World War. Oh, wow. He, he, he wasn't one of the incompetent ones. He, he actually knew what he was doing, unlike General Melchick. He, he yeah. was one of the guys who founded the tank corps, which the British invented tanks, you know. And so he was really in there. Anyway, the story goes that he, um, well, we're Protestants, okay. So he didn't have any kids. And... Uh, his younger brother, Evan, died young, and the brother younger than that was my dad's dad, Wilfred. Okay, so the story goes that the senior um, cousin, as it were, my father's cousin Trevor, became a Catholic and uh, then got very ill and gave the house away to the Catholic Church, which was a family scandal uh, because all the money in the in the family just went and suddenly we were all poverty struck and all so that that was the story that I was always told tops no more and it yeah it turns out not to be true what happened was that uh, Trevor was already the son of a Catholic mother and what happened was that the general decided to take a mistress who was a woman apparently called Lady Kilmurray mm. and went gallivanting around the world and went climbing the Dolomites and skiing and spend all the money. Spend all the dough. 
Yeah, so that when Trevor inherited the house, he's got this massive pile that's all falling to pieces at the seams and no money. Yeah. So they had to sell the house simply to survive. So it's a great thing that uh, sharing these stories is amazing, you know, catching up all these people. And it's a, it's a really odd feeling to think I'm part of a family whose records go back, you know, hundreds of years. I'd mm. like to, do you, do you know that British show, Who Do You Think You Are? Yeah. I, I think I'd quite like to be on that now because it's a, it's a, you know, even though we don't own the house, we all feel a kind of weird connection to it. You know, it's the most beautiful place. I think I showed you the picture. You did. It is beautiful. It's amazing, though, that you sort of had this story in your head your whole life. And then all of a sudden this weekend, you thought, no, that's actually not what, what happened. He spent all the money and they had to give it away. Yeah, I think it's a kind of metaphor for life, that isn't it? The stories we tell ourselves and then you suddenly find, oh, no, that's not true at all. We're going to get into the music question shortly, but let's do a little bit of catching up. I know that you went to Trinity College in, in Cambridge to read law. And while you were there, you became a member of the Footlights. Can you tell us a little bit about your college years? Yeah. So um, I was a bit of a lefty at school. Um, it was the 60s. And we were all dressed up like Neville Chamberlain in wing collars and pinstripe thing. We had canes when we walked around boaters. You can imagine in the middle of the 60s, we looked like a time warp uh, Victorian school just walking around Canterbury, you know, I was at King's Canterbury. And I really hated that because, you know, I loved all the music that was going on. It was all incredibly new and exciting. And we were sort of trapped in this kind of, <laughs> so almost like a Victorian prison. And I was supposed to so more or less told I was to go to history, uh, to, to Oxford to read history. I didn't want to. So I rebelled. And this is a kind of first word world rebellion, Nick, you know, it's really sad. I said, no, I'm going to go to Cambridge to read law. <laughs> so that was like, that was like so radical in those days. But actually, my school were right. I made a really bad decision because I got to Cambridge and I thought this is not for me. I'm not, it's not what I thought it was going to be at all. So I tried to change back again to history or English and they wouldn't let me. So I spent three years working very hard, but not at the law. And I got, I ended up with a really terrible law degree. I do have a, a law degree, but I spent those three years finding out really uh, what I wanted to do. So I did a bit of straight acting to start with. Uh, and then I ruined two of those straight plays by getting laughs where I didn't mean to. <laughs> <laughs> You're thinking, hang on. Yeah. They were, <laughs> they were big hits, but not for the right reasons. And the directors used to weep into their beer uh, after every performance so I thought that's not for me so I did a bit of student journalism and I used to write the gossip column in the student paper and then it was very popular that it was funny I must have been fun it was great fun I went to a lot of parties and of course nobody knew it was me and then the editor was so pleased with how well it was going it was one of the most popular things in the paper that he printed my name he said Ghoulies is written by John Lloyd. And that was a complete disaster because yeah. everyone I'd written about all knew it was me. Now you're in trouble. No, I didn't go to any any parties the next the whole of the next year. And so eventually I ended up a student politician I did. I was the college uh, student rep on the college council. And then I ended up, uh, I thought, okay, comedy is the thing that I do. So I was in the college review and I, the second year I wrote it and co-directed it with my friend Richard. And we asked the leading lady of Footlights, a girl called Mary, to come and sing a song in our show. And she came, and it was a wonderful honour. And I fell in love with this girl, and she said, you should have a go at Footlights, which I thought was way beyond me, much too sort of important and all that. So I got into Footlights, 
And usually the BBC came to see that, which they, not telly this year, that year, but BBC Radio came and they loved it. So they gave us a show from that. So I was on BBC Radio 4 at the age of, what, 21, something like that. Amazing. And that went down well. So they gave us another show and that went down well, Singleton. And then they gave us a series. So before I was a producer, I was a writer-performer, which is what I'd always wanted to do. And then a guy came into the writer's room and said, uh, you, Lloyd, do you want to be a producer? And I said, not really. So what do they do? They all seem terribly <laughs> old. They're all very old and tweedy. You know? He said, no, I think you do want to be a producer. I said, well, all right. And I was very, very poor. Even though it looked like success, I had absolutely no money. I mean, you can't live on doing two half-hour radio shows a year. You, right. you, you couldn't then and you can't now. So I'm sure. He said, okay, you, you can do a bit of performing as well if you want and start producing. And within three months, I'd found my vocation. I thought I never produced anything or directed anything before, but I found as a 22-year-old, I could do it. I don't know. I had just had a knack for it, you know? You, you're really the, the person behind everything, right? Just sort of making sure everybody's hired, everybody's in their place, making sure the tech works, and at the end of the day, just overseeing the whole production. Yeah, and I people often say, what does a producer do? And I say, well, that's a very difficult question because the answer is sort of everything and sort of nothing. Mm. So I don't actually write the script. You know, I don't compose the music. I don't, you know, sew the costumes or I wouldn't know how to light a room to save my life. But of course, you don't need to light a room in radio, but it's the same same difference, really. It's And what I've got it down to is what I, my skill in life is I know what I like. And when I know what I like, I'm implacable about carrying it through. And by that, what I know, like, I mean, I know if I think something's funny. I know if I think the actress is talented. You know, mm -hmm. I know if I like that set design. It's a very, very simple thing. But you, as you know, most people in life, they sort of do know what they think, but they're too worried about what other people think of what they think mm -hmm. to carry it through. You see it a lot on social media, don't you? Oh, you see it. Oh, I don't know. Yeah. You see it in the music business now, which is instead of, you know, back in the day, you've had, you'd have really powerful, you know, music moguls and you'd have A&R men who were passionate about this band. They go out and they find a band, they probably sign them on the spot. And then they would argue crazy arguments with their boss that we need to sign these people for a proper amount of money. Yeah. Trusting your own intuition is is really everything, but it is difficult uh, these days when you do have so many people in the mix um, just looking for numbers, as you said, doing research, et cetera, et cetera. It's a very different uh, different time. I'm interested in your in your own background as a, as a radio listener before you got to work in radio. Yeah. Uh, for myself, I have clear memories as a kid. Uh, we're, we're, we're close contemporaries, I think. I think you've got a couple of years on me, but I, I think we probably grew up listening to some of the same stuff. Mm. I have very clear memories of Sunday lunch with my parents with radio shows like Round the Horn and The Goons playing in the afternoon. Um, and my journey in the music business started as a kid listening to a tiny Sinclair solid state radio under the bedsheets with Radio Luxembourg and Radio Caroline and all that fun stuff. I, I know how you got into radio. You just shared it with us. But what about your own experiences with radio before you started working in the medium? What did you listen to? Well, you could have just described me exactly. Those shows, The Goons, Round the Horn, 
uh, particular favorite in my family because my dad was in the Navy. It was the Navy lark about this incompetent bunch of sailors who kept crashing the ship. And there was a Clitheroe kid, wasn't there, and all those things. And, you know, when I was in Footlights, I was actually fired from Footlights after uh, a few weeks because I'd ruined these two straight plays at university. And the director wanted to take a straight play up to the Edinburgh Festival with the review. And he said, I can't risk it with you. And he said, and I was really upset because I thought at the age of 20 odd, my career's over. I was just mm. so close to being successful and I've been sacked. You could see I was really upset. So he said, well, hey, no, they've given us this radio show. You can do that instead. And I was really sort of a bit insulted, really. Uh, but, but why couldn't I be in the television show with all the others and all that? And then I thought, no, radio is my, it formed my sense of humor listening to those things. And as you rightly said, you know, I was sent away to a prep school, boarding school at nine and a half. And that was the thing that we used to listen to, Radio Luxembourg, Radio Caroline. It was completely illegal. We'd all have these little tiny transistor radios mm -hmm. uh, and we'd listen to, you know, all those amazing DJs. And uh, so in a way that sort of formed my musical taste and and certainly radio formed my comedy taste and um and i still think you know the best radio can be the funniest stuff you can find anywhere there's a ton of shows that i mentioned at the the beginning um some of them which you worked with on on radio and in television and all the stuff that I loved before I left the UK a few years ago now. Tell us about The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and your relationship with Douglas Adams. I believe you guys met at college, right? We did. We didn't know each other terribly well because the way that it worked is, you know, I don't know how it works in American universities, but uh, the big universities, the Oxford and Cambridge, are divided into different colleges. And they, mm. although you, you go to lectures in common and so on, and there are university professors it's kind of college-based, really, and they're quite competitive. So I was at Trinity, Cambridge, and Douglas was at St. John's, the one next door. Hmm. And we, we were in rival comedy shows. So I was in a thing called the Trinity Review, and he was a thing called Adam Smith Adams with two of his friends. So we were quite competitive. We got very, very good friends when we came down from university and eventually ended up sharing a flat and then a house. And we did everything together. We talked all night and we would, you know, go out to the pub together and try and pitch projects and pilots and wrote movie treatments and everything else. And then he got this pilot for The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and then he got a series and, and he got stuck about four episodes in of six and he asked me if I'd help him out. So, of course, he's my best friend. Of course I will. And he said, look... It probably won't go anywhere, but if there's a second series, obviously we do it together. It's really lonely writing on my own. I hate mm. it. Anyway, it was a huge success, this thing, straight away. Um, and, you know, it was all over the press, and we had all these offers from publishers. And then Douglas gave me the sack, which was a bit, <laughs> a bit upsetting at the time. Oh, no. But like I've said earlier, Nick, you know, I've been sacked a lot in my life. Nobody would call it sacking. They'd just say, look, I don't really need you anymore, okay? Right. Wouldn't it be better if I had all the money? You do get it, don't you? I said, <laughs> no, not really. At the time, it's very hurtful, but it's what has kept me going, you know? Yeah. Because it's made me move on. I'm a very lazy person. I'm, you know, really happy in my comfort zone. So I say, he, he kicked me out, and I then went to television, partly as a result of Douglas firing me, because I didn't want to work in radio anymore. And when I started to be successful in television, I went to the Beeb and said, there's this amazing radio show called Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And they, oh, that's weird. What is that? And I said, well, it's a kind of blend of science fiction and comedy. So 
that's how he got his television series. Mm. It wasn't really as good as the radio, I don't think. But, um, you know, and from there, he was writing little books and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I did listen to it on the radio. I remember hearing it for the first time, a friend playing it to me on the radio. And uh, that's the whole thing about radio, the theater of the mind, isn't it? That, you know, when you're listening to something, you're conjuring up your own images of, of what it is. And then when you see it perhaps on television or film, it's it's going to yeah. be a little bit different. But definitely groundbreaking as a radio show, as a TV show. And uh, I could probably spend an hour with you just talking about some of your work in that world. <laughs> um, let me ask you about one more show. You mentioned Spitting Image which was such a groundbreaking show at the time. It was puppet satire, which I think in, was it 1980, 81 when that? Uh, we, we started, it went on air in 84, and I did the first three years, including we made four for NBC in LA. Mm. And I really thought, you know, I again, our careers are so weirdly in parallel because I first went to the States around the time you did, so 82, is that when you went? Yeah, 88. I went to Australia in 82 and got here in 88. Okay, so I was slightly ahead of you then, because with Spitting Image, we made uh, four shows for NBC. It was very hugely successful in the UK. We were getting 15 million people, which, you know, no show gets 15 million, apart from maybe the Olympics these days. But mm. there was this huge thing right in the era of Mrs. Thatcher, so very divided nation like it is now with Brexit or like the States is, you know, between red and blue, very divided and a great time for satire to flourish because, you know, people have very strong opinions. And we did these four shows for NBC in the States and they went huge. The, the fourth one got to number 14 in the Nielsen ratings, which was extraordinary for a completely unheard of British puppet show. Yeah. And I was called by my uh, network executive who said, hey, John, uh, I'm going to go and see Brandon, who was Brandon Tartikoff, who was the boss of the channel, and said, I'm going to get you 22 shows for this show. You, you, this is just huge. And I actually went to meet an expat Brit in the Beverly Hills Tennis Club, and I was thinking about moving to L.A. because I'm going to be rich. I'm going to be super famous. <laughs> Because teleproducers in the UK don't get rich, but in LA they do. Sure. If you're a good teleproducer, you can make a lot of money. I thought, wow, my life is really completely going to change. Anyway, I didn't hear anything from the guy for a couple of weeks. And then he suddenly called out and said, John, you're cancelled. I said, what, that? what happened to the 22 shows? He said, well, no, 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 you're cancelled. Because what had happened in the interim is that NBC had been bought by another huge multinational conglomerate. I can't remember who owns them now. And they thought, basically, that Spitting Image was a communist plot, you know, an anti-American communist plot. Oh, no. It was General Electric, right? Yeah, that's right. It, exactly. It was General Electric. And the reason why they thought it was, it was all to do with, um, what was the gate? Not Watergate. It was Contragate. Do you remember that? Yeah, Ollie North and all that. That's weird right. Stuff. The whole Ollie North thing. And because we had parodied that and talk, made jokes about it, we had the second largest number of complaints about lack of truth and, you know, uh, anti-Americanism on the whole of NBC, Spitting Image, these four tiny British shows. Wow. And they, they hated that. Guess what the most complained about show was on NBC about anti-American and not, not, not true stuff? Do you know what? I, I really don't. I, I feel like I should, but... I'll tell you, it was the network news. <laughs> the national network news telling, wow. as they saw it, the complete truth. That was the most complained about show on the whole network. So the uh, the American experiment didn't quite work, but Spitting Image remains a, a classic in British comedy, and I believe came back the, not too long ago, right? Didn't they reboot it? 
Yeah, it didn't. It didn't have the same cachet. It was with Britbox, which is a partnership between uh, commercial television and the BBC. It had some very good puppets in it and so on. But when we were making it, it was full of crazy kids, you know, lots of young people. And there was a mission. It was like people... They weren't trying to be successful. What they're trying to do is be trying to be as funny as they possibly could be. So it was mm -hmm. really good. And now, you know, as I say, I was completely free as a producer to do what I liked as long as I didn't break the law. And so I drove that forward. And we had, you know, great writers and great performers. And now everyone's always got their eye on the ratings, haven't they? You know, yeah. in my day, they didn't expect. They expected it would be a very small you know, niche kind of show, went out at 10 o'clock on a Sunday night, which in those days, most British people were in bed by 10 o'clock. <laughs> and the show after it got, I don't know, I think just under a million ratings. And the one before it probably got just over a million. So they thought maybe it'd get a million, maybe two million. As someone who hasn't lived in the UK for many years myself, I only recently discovered the show that you helped launch in 2003, QI. And my partner and myself have been gobbling them up on you mentioned it Britbox, <laughs> uh yeah. which ha has all the shows uh originally hosted by the great stephen fry who you also worked with in, in blackadder of course along with regular guest alan davies tell us a little bit about that show and what do you think it is about it that has kept it on the air for almost 20 years yes well so as as, as i've overshared perhaps nick i've been fired a lot of times and i was fired a couple of times in 1993 from things and i had suffered a kind of midlife crisis well i did i had a, i got very depressed and angry and i was a bit of a mess for several years yeah i had one of those oh, did you yeah <laughs> oh, oh good <laughs> It's, but actually, the funny thing is, when you confess it, you find out all, all sorts of people they do, they don't tend to talk about it, though, do they? On the whole? yeah, nobody talks about the the mass depression that hits you when you get fired in your middle age. <laughs> no, I know. Well, anyway, it happened to me, and I was very lost for two or three years, and I thought, well, I got to dig myself out of this. So I started I quite literally think, I wonder if there's any meaning to life other than the fact of being successful. You know, is that he who dies with the most toys wins, and so on. So I thought. That seems a bit of a pathetic way to be. And I, I used to had small children. I worried about what would happen if they died because I'd never really thought about what happens to people when they die, if anything. Mm. You know, I was a sort of, as it were, agnostic to normal. I wasn't a churchgoer or anything like that, no particular faith. So I started thinking about things. And I was very privileged to, at the time, be a director of television commercials. I'd stopped doing telly um, in the late 80s after Blackadder. And I went all around the world, you know, shooting ads for lager and, you know, financial services, fridges, cheese, whatever. Sure. And I, I went to Iceland and Australia and Japan and, you know, Arizona and Moscow um, just after the Berlin Wall came down. It was really fascinating. And everywhere I went, I bought books because I could afford to. And also I found that places I went weren't like the cliches that I thought they were in, you know, I thought in Russia, everybody would be, um, you know, a like cliche of a Russian or, you know, in Iceland, everyone would eat rotted shark's meat and uh, look like, look like Bjork, you know? <laughs> and of course it's not like that at all. There's more to Brazil than football and coffee in Copacabana beach. A lot more. It's a very, very large country and a very interesting country. So all these things, I suddenly thought, I thought I was educated. You know, I went to Cambridge and I realized that was one of my problems is I thought I don't know anything about anything. And so over the years, this is 
it's this started to become an obsession with me. Why are all these things that I learned at school not true? And it, then I had this idea for this thing, QI. Before it was a telly show, it was the idea that QI stands for quite interesting. It also stands for IQ backwards. Okay, so IQ is a linear way of thinking, and QI is like an upside downy way of thinking. Hmm. And the mantra of QI is everything in the universe without exception is interesting, provided it is looked at long enough, closely enough, or from the right angle. And that's our mantra. And we've been running 20 years. We've done, <coughs> excuse me, I'm in 200 odd television shows. I mean, 100 radio shows. We've produced 20 books, something like that. We have one of the most successful podcasts in the UK, and it's all based on that idea. The 30 people in the company, all they do is they look for interesting information all day long, and then they collate it into stuff. And so QI, the telly show, yeah, if it's available on Brickbox, that's great. Um, it's basically you learn without realizing you're learning because you're laughing so much, you don't realize that you've learned something you didn't know before. And you've also learned something you thought was true uh is not is not the case anymore i find it endlessly fascinating from the point of view of learning things and it's great fun as well um thank you for for creating that show it's really sort of uh given something to my life in this last year or so for sure so i i appreciate it i'm i'm so pleased i can't tell you so let's talk a little bit about music you mentioned being a college uh, university and uh, the excitement of the music that was being made at the time can you tell us what your first musical memory is? Well, I was really struggling to think about this, Nick, because A, my dad was away a lot at sea. Um, so I never really found out what kind of music he liked, really, because, you know, he would come back from sea and he would say things like, right, there's a threepence halfpenny for the first child to find a wren's nest in that hedge because he didn't really know how to deal with children, you know, because he was used to dealing with sailors and basically just giving orders, and he didn't know how to deal with, with us. So, and I remember my parents had very few albums, you know. They had two that I can remember. One was called Exitos en Folklore, which I think means uh, folk song hits in Spanish, because my, my dad had one of his big naval things that he'd led a flotilla of British ships round South America and came back raving about how amazing it was. Hmm. He, he absolutely loved South America. And he brought back that. And then there was another album called, which I looked up today, which I'm amazing. You can remember these things. So this is, I must've been, I don't know. I'm sure I have earlier memories, but I can't think of them. I just think of these two albums. The other was called Ottilie's Irish Night. And Ottilie Patterson was a Northern Irish jazz blues singer who sang with all sorts of people like Chris Barber and so on. She was considered very, very good in the day. That's that's one thing I can remember. But I think if I'm honest, my first musical memory is kind of really weird. I think it'd be the national anthem because I'm an unusual person because my earliest memory, I would have been about two and a half when the Queen was crowned. And I remember my parents bought a black and white telly and I was sitting in my little high chair and this little, these fluttering pictures came on and that was the Queen. They Like a lot of people in the country, that was their first sight of television. They went out and hired a television just for the day. Right. So that would probably have been my first thing, but it was nothing to do with the kind of music that I listen to or, or like really now. That's really interesting. You, you know, some Spanish folk songs, a, a little 
jazz from Northern Ireland and uh, God Save the Queen. Yeah, that, that's it's not much of a does done disc, is it really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what What was the first music you bought with your own money? Well, I think this is, um, again, you've got an odd life if you're sent away to boarding school at nine-ish, you know, mm. because you are, well, in those days, you were persistently hungry. If you had any spare money, you would probably either break school ground, you know, break out through the, the grounds and climb under the fence and steal an apple or a potato because <laughs> you were so hungry. Or you'd go down, if you were allowed on Sundays, go and, you know, buy some sweets. Again, probably quite illegal. So we didn't have a lot of spare cash for um, money, but I think the first um, single I bought was Little Eva doing Locomotion. Do you remember that? Fantastic, yes. Yeah. yeah. I just really thought that was amazing. I was a bit too... I'm a bit too young for Elvis, I imagine, as I imagine you are. That was sort of like 50s, wasn't it? And, you know, when I was very, very small. And, you know, my thing really was the beginning of just what's little eva 60 has it been 60 62 maybe let's look it up while we're talking yeah yeah 1962 okay so that's really interesting so that would probably be just before uh the first beatles hit which was please please me was it was it love me do i can't remember it was one of those two yeah first beatles hit love me do Oh, great. Yes. I always worry. So Love Me Do, the first Beatles hit. And I remember I was uh, saying, we're at prep school and the Beatles was like a tornado going through all these little kids, you know, going, this is, this is, there's nothing like this. And I remember the excitement, you know, a new Beatles single. I don't think there's been anything like it since, you know, you, you say, okay, Oasis or, you know, U2 or whatever. I don't think people in the, the the numbers both here in the states anticipated a new beatles single you know you think of them as a, so love me do please please me from me to you um oh gosh they and each one seemed to be so completely different you know they'd open in a totally different way and they were so easy to remember to sing and that was the soundtrack of my life all the way really through through prep school when I left I left in 65 so that would be in the sort of core years of the Beatles in those first three years you know before they went really sophisticated but just fantastic and we'd all go down to the cellar all you know little boys all together all dancing to these tunes mm. it was just marvelous uh, I was a couple of years behind you I ended up going to a boarding school as well but I went a little later and I went because the adults didn't know what they were doing so I had to go somewhere uh, <laughs> I, went, I, I went there at 12 and and it's it's remarkable speaking to you and and you know this is you know it's not radio but it's just the audio that you guys are listening to and i'm just wondering what images it conjures up in your heads dear listener as you hear us talking about going down to cellars and listening to music because i had exactly the same experience so only my thing in the cellar was led zeppelin in 1971 yeah. or, or something like that but it's those moments when you're just open to hearing things for the first time and the beatles was my introduction to music as well because of my parents right the excitement from 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 the parents and uh it is a little bit different now as as you, as you said you know, people discover music differently uh radio is not as much of a, a source of discovery for music anymore but let, let's let's talk about live music what was the first concert that you went to well the one that I really remember was going to see with some friends from school 
going to see Alvin Lee, the, the play uh, with 10 years after at the Albert Hall, mm. which was a really formative thing. I'd never done anything like that. You know, we were, my parents were quite, despite my father going all over the world, quite sort of parochial. You know, they wouldn't be, I had a, an aunt, Lily, who was a real, real lovely old lady who used to say, I don't like the Beatles. The <laughs> Beatles are not my kind of thing at all. They seem very long haired. <laughs> and so going to see Alvin Lee, who was an unbelievably cool guitarist, as you know, the sort of Eric Clapton of his day, really, yeah. just a master. And the excitement of one of those big concerts. And another one was going to the... It was called in those days the Shepton Mallet Festival. And there was only like, I think, one of them, maybe two. So I, we can date that. You could look that one up as well. So I asked this girl in the next village, who's about my age, I was probably 17, 18, something like that, to go to this thing called the Shepton Mallet Festival. And that was my first pop festival that had been in the 60s sometime. And the lineup is unbelievable when you think these people are all quite new. So Canned Heat. Fairport Convention, John Mayle, Pink Floyd, and Steppenwolf. I mean, those are, the, those are just the standout ones. There are loads of others. And we blooming loved this thing. It was just incredibly exciting. And we got back eventually after it was over to, to London. It was just one day. We went for a day because that's all our parents would allow. They didn't want us sleeping in a tent or anything. Mm. So we got back to London. And we realized that the trains back to Essex had all stopped. And we were stuck in London with no money, you know, maybe a fiver between us. Not enough. Mm. Fiver had been a lot of money in those days, you know, a couple of quid. Mm. And we didn't know what to do. We were essentially homeless. And so we slept in a shop window and on Oxford Street, you know, not not inside the shop, but in the little bit where the door goes in. Yeah, you know? just sort of get out of the draft. Yeah, exactly. And then I took her back home and her parents were furious and I never saw her again. They, they thought... <laughs> They thought I'd done something terrible and we had nothing had gone wrong. It was rather nice and rather fun going around the nightlife of the city, you know. It wasn't dangerous, wasn't frightening particularly, it was just cold. I do hope who uh, whoever your, your date was at the time, um, when asked what her earliest memory of rock music is, was I, I went to this weird thing in Bath with this <laughs> guy and then he made me sleep in a shop door and my parents, <laughs> let me see him again. Yeah. Um, yeah, just outside of Bath. And uh, interestingly enough, Michael Evis was in attendance uh, at the festival and was inspired to hold later that year the first event of what would become the Glastonbury Festival. Wow, I didn't know that, Nick. That's yep. such a cool fact. Wow. I, listen, I feel part of history now. I feel my little, you know, <laughs> event. I was, you know, part of that. Do you dance or is that or is that a dumb question? And if you do dance, what, what do you listen to when you want to dance? Well, I, I don't really dance. And I'll tell you why, because, again, going away to prep school is we all had to do ballroom dancing lessons. Oh, no, I didn't get that part. Yeah, no, we well, because we you no, know, I was on the cusp. So, again, it was ridiculous. We were listening to the Beatles in the cellar. And then we had to do ballroom dancing, you know, the waltz and the, um, mm. all the things that are on Strictly Come Dancing or whatever it's called now. It's amazing how it comes, things come around. Yeah. And of course, we were, it was an all boys school. So you had to do the tango with another boy. I was shorter than most of them. I, I, I didn't really start growing tall. I'm quite tall now until I was 16. So I was always the little one. So I had to have the girl's part. Yeah, you were the girl. I get it. Yeah. Yeah. So I learned to dance backwards. So when I actually went to dances, I couldn't do it because I only knew how to dance backwards. And so anyway, I hated it, actually, to be perfectly honest. It seemed completely pointless in the in the 60s to learn ballroom dancing. Right. 
And then it went straight from ballroom dancing to the kind of thing you did at um, 10 years after, which is, you know, frugging and, you know, just completely unstructured. Abandonment, yeah. Yeah, sort of heavy metals, you know, headbanging stuff yeah. from one to the other. And I never really got the point of either of them. So the thing <laughs> I do like, the only thing is I've got a neighbour called Sophia, who's, um, who's a great friend. I like dancing with her to salsa. That's the, right. that's the thing I discovered. That's one thing I can do. We talked a little bit about a time in your life when you were perhaps a, a little bit lost before you sort of came around and started moving forward again. Do you, do you listen to music when you're sad? Do you listen to music when you're down? Are you somebody who sort of like barrels into it? Or are you somebody who's like, no, I just, I'm not going to listen to anything right now? What, what do you listen to if you're feeling sad? Well, I, t I actually, I know this is a ridiculous thing. As somebody who's been very, very sad, and certainly my crisis lasted uh, pushing 10 years of being very resentful and angry and depressed and struggling a lot, I feel I've come out the other side into this, you know, it's not exactly a sunlit upland or anything, but I basically think Mark Twain has this great line, Nick, which I try to live by. He said, towards the end of his life, he said, I'm an old man now, and I've known many troubles, but most of them have never happened. That most of the pain you go through is mentally induced, and it's about you. It's about the little man in your little head, you know, worrying and regretting and fearing and all that. If you get sort of that person under control, actually, most of the physical things that happen, they're, you know, they're, they're quite rare, the bad things. I'm not saying they don't happen. We've all had them. We've all had terrible shocks and so on. But the main thing that you need to get under control is your own head. And my son, Harry, and I talk about this a lot because you may know that he, uh, I'm his manager. Um, so he has a band called Waiting for Smith. He's a solo artist, but also can do it with a band. Mm. And he's starting to do quite well. And honestly, the music I listen to is his um, at the moment because he's got mental health issues, which is later CP, which is called Trying Not to Try. The first uh, proper song we ever re released was called Monkeys in My Head, which is about exactly that, which is, you know, the chattering voice, the monkey mind, the, the, you know, as as they call it in Buddhism. Um, it's about trying to get a control on that. So, and I love his music. We This uh, Irish weekend, we were listening to his, the latest track is called um, Tidal Wave, and we were playing it to everyone this this weekend because it's very, his stuff is very hooky. And it helps a lot of people because he, you know, it's very melodic and very easy to uh, remember, but it's also about something. You know, it's got a lot of anguish in there. So, and I find that shared thing when, when either Harry and I are feeling sad, his music really helps me a lot. If you could only hear one song for the rest of your life, and I don't mean on repeat, but, you know, if somebody said there's only one song, that you can listen to now, um, what would it be? Well, that's uh, such a hard thing. You know that the Brits have this show called Desert Island Discs where you... You've been on it, right? Yeah, I have, yeah. It's yeah. Uh, weirdly, my edition, which I was just trying to be funny and, you know, cheerful, In you can go and get Desert Island Discs online. Anyone can, anywhere in the world. It's freely available on BBC Sounds, I think it is. And mine always makes the list of the nine most poignant Desert Island Discs editions. And it's been mm. running for like 70 years or something insane. 
And I remember that you, you're supposed to choose eight tracks that you'd take to a desert island. And it, that was the hardest thing about that show is I couldn't get it down under 50 tracks I really liked. Oh, my gosh. And I'm asking you for one. Yeah. Yeah. But so I, I remember uh, there's talk about being sad. One one of the tracks that I recommended or talked about on there is Van Morrison's Bright Side of the Road that always makes me happy, no matter how shit I'm feeling. That would be one. Another thing is a wonderful one hit wonder song. Do you know Bruce Gardner? I want to wake up with you. I don't think I do. Oh, you've got us! It's the most fantastic sort of reggae song. It's really a really wonderful song. And then I suppose this is not pop music, but things that mean a lot to me. Which is um, there's a wonderful piece of music by Handel, classical music called "The Entry of the Queen of Sheba," which was played at my wedding when Sarah, my wife, came down the aisle. Which mm. al always makes me remember that wonderful day. Do you have a, a favorite music video? There's, there's so many, but I, I'm going to mention one because it's an interesting story. Um, and it's the one that I directed. I only directed one. And it was Genesis Land of Confusion, hmm. um, which I directed in the mid-80s. Um, and it had 385, I think, spitting image puppets in it. Did you ever see it? I did, yes. Now, now that you told me that, I totally remember it. Yeah. Well, obviously, that's the one for you to direct. Yeah, and um, it won every prize you can imagine, including a Grammy. Wow. Um, so, so you have a Grammy? Yeah. Well, I've never done it because the thing is, it's. I'm not. I'm not going to lie, Nick. I'm. I was slightly uh, miffed on this. I tell you. So, I'm in LA shooting an ad, which, as I say, I did for about ten, twelve years, usually mm. during my midlife crises. But so I was a high functioning depressive. I wasn't, you know, <laughs> useless. I could get out of bed. I, I went all over the world. I worked very hard. And I was in LA shooting an ad, I think with Jeff Goldblum for Holston Pills. I think it was that one. Okay. And directors, are, uh, you know, if they're in a town they don't know very well, the crew all go home and you're stuck in your hotel room. Maybe you're working the storyboard. But anyway, I found myself in my hotel room and I thought, I'll get some room service and watch a bit of telly, you know, relax a bit. So open the mini bar, got out a bottle of wine or something. And on, I was turned on to MTV. And yeah, and it was MTV's 100 greatest videos of all time. So I thought, oh, I've just done Genesis Land of Confusion. It's done quite well. I, I bet that's in there somewhere. I'll have a look. And I joined right at the beginning of the program in the 90s. And, and uh, it was not in the 90s. And it, it, it didn't get in the top 80. And it didn't get in the top 70. And I'm starting to really set into the minibar now. You know, I've, I've gone and I've drunk all the wine. So I'm starting on the whiskey. Uh, <laughs> And I'm starting to empty this little box of delights and it gets up through the 40s and the 30s. And I'm beginning to get really quite cross. Surely it must get a mention somewhere in the top 100. And by the top 10, I'm really quite sozzled. I hardly see the television. <laughs> and it goes to, and the winner is the MTV's top music video of all time is Genesis, Land of Confusion. And I go, what? <laughs> and... uh so I'm just staring at the television thinking, what what the hell's this? And the other director, who's a guy called Jim Yukich, gets up in his black tie and his dinner jacket and goes and collects the award. And they hadn't even told me. Well, that's not cool. I thought, oh, that was a bit rude, don't you think? 
Yeah. Because Jim was the guy, he's a very nice guy, but he was the guy who directed all of Genesis's um, live stuff. So he was there because they knew and trusted him. Right. But I did the storyboard and I did actually direct the puppeteers and all that kind of thing. So it was a kind of, um, oh dear, it's probably a terrible story and I shouldn't shouldn't have told it now, but it was, <laughs> that, that is that, that is what happened. Is I I I won the the thing and I, and I didn't get to go to the Grammys either because whoever it was the company that he was part of didn't tell me. As my dad used to say, who was in uh, regional television news, that's showbiz. <laughs> was he a newsreader or what? Um, my dad, um, who I didn't have a very good relationship with, unfortunately, and has now passed away, but, um, he was a journalist. He was actually from, from London, but he moved up to the Midlands and was working for, um, the Birmingham Evening Mail and Dispatch when ITV first got going and ATV got the, um, the franchise in the Midlands. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, and my dad was a, a, a newsreader and then a political journalist for ATV and then Central for, for many years. Yeah. So, you know, he was on TV when it counted as well. Um, so when when did he retire? I think I think he took early retirement when he was like 60. Yeah. Uh, and then they hired him back as a consultant for another four or five years. It was when um, Carlton bought Central. So he would have retired probably about 30 years ago, I guess. So, you know, maybe mid 90s or end of the 90s something well like he that. he'd have definitely been there at central when i was making spitting image then oh absolutely yes yeah yeah we, we could have met you never know reg harcourt but he was up in the midlands you'd shut that down in london right no no we shot in birmingham oh you did yeah yeah i used to go up every week for three wow. days wow 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 so I, I guess yeah they shot it in birmingham amazing yeah that is uncanny the whole thing nick about this this chat is, you know, it's kind of weird that we, we, we the parallels are uncanny, aren't they? And, really? and sliding doors, you know. It's yeah, just yeah. Like, We've just crazy. missed each other. Yeah, yeah. Do you have a recent musical discovery that you'd like to share with our listeners? Okay, so I, I've got to go and plug my boy's band. I'm his manager. Brian Ego's the name. Uh, lovely boy, very talented. Did I mention the rider, the uh, green M&Ms? Because they don't <laughs> go on without them, you know what I mean? So Harry Waiting for Smith is, you know, obviously I'm crazy about him. He's my boy. I think he's very gifted and all that kind of stuff. You know, check him out. But as a result of Harry, I've worked too hard, Nick, you know, in my life. I don't have time for leisure. I'm so busy turning out leisure for other people, you know, whether it's ads or it's telly or radio or mm. theatre and books. You know, I never stop working. I love what I do. I'm very, very happy about it. But I don't really have time to consume fun myself very much. And Harry, because of uh, managing his band, I listen to more music than I have since I was probably going back to that, you know, 10 years. Or for me, the music time for me was being at college. You mentioned Led Zepp. Led Zeppelin II is my favourite uh, album. We were all, by that time, we were all sort of, I didn't take acid, but all my friends did. You know, it was all Stars and Stripes pants, and we liked... We were quite into, well, definitely Led Zepp, and we used to open the windows and play it in big speakers out and annoy everybody in Cambridge. Impose it on everybody else, yeah. Yeah, Deep Purple I was crazy about. Um, I just listened to a lot of music, but 
So I, I check out music all the time. And here's here's a um, a band. Do you know um, uh, a Mongolian band called The Who, H-U, The H-U? I, I've heard of them, but I, I, yeah. They have a fantastic track. And I, oddly enough, I, I know the British record company that managed them. They have a wonderful song called UV UV U, which is on YouTube. Mm. Um, that was one I thought. I came across a band the other day called Chintzy Stetson that I thought was marvellous. Uh, do you know uh, the Dum Dum Girls? This is not new. Yes, I like them. Bedroom Eyes, fantastic. Yeah. The the Congos, Come With Me Now. I've just made, I keep a list of them all. Yeah. The, Lum the Lumineers, I'd never heard of them. Stubborn sure. Love, that's a fantastic song. Huge band here. Are they? Okay. Yeah. Do you have a, a band or an artist that you love but feel that they perhaps never quite got the big break they deserved? Somebody that you discovered and thought would be huge and it never quite happened? <laughs> no. Well, I think that now, as we know, 100,000 songs are uploaded to Spotify every day, I gather, which is why new artists it's so difficult to break through, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And I'm, I'm, there must be lots of them, but I don't really I don't particularly keep a list of those. Um, but I remember going back to prep school when eventually what happened was that the school divided rather like Brexit or Trump into people who liked the Beatles and thought they were the greatest band ever and people who thought the Stones was the greatest band ever. Sure. And because I like to be a bit contrarian, I decided that the Searchers were the greatest band ever. <laughs> and who's ever heard of them? So, but I know, um, I'm sure there are, I mean, there are too many people who are talented who don't get, get a look in anymore. And it's the way the culture's swung, isn't it? Yeah. Do, do you have a, a band or an artist that you would consider a guilty pleasure? And this is a strange question, I know, because some people will just say, I don't feel guilty about anything. I love everything. And then some people <laughs> say, you know, well, yeah, you know, when I like for me, right? So so mine is is um Duran Duran. Okay. Um, because, you know, I grew up in Birmingham and they came out of Birmingham with the whole new romantic thing. And at the time it was exciting. And then it all kind of kind of got a little bit naff, but they're still going. They just celebrated their 40th anniversary. So now I don't mind telling people, you know. Do, do you have anything like that yourself? Well, I I I, I think I do, actually, but um, I was going to tell you a story. I went to a party a few years ago, maybe five, seven years ago, about five, maybe a bit more, and it was a boat race party in London, and it was given by a really famous uh, daytime television presenter called Holly Willoughby, who's very, very attractive, mm -hmm. and she, she's married to a very successful telly producer, a friend of mine called Dan Baldwin, and it was a great party, and because of the kind of people they are, there were quite a few celebs there. And he went, wow, I met that. Oh, I saw that person. It was quite, I was still quite excited about, you know, people. Yeah. Anyway, so, and there was a, a nice old middle-aged guy there, sort of my my kind of age, roughly. And uh, we got talking. We had a really good laugh, you know what I mean? Like you and me. Just, uh, yeah, we get on. We share so many things and we've got a similar sense of humour. And so we're just bantering away and, you know, uh, in this celebrity sort of thing he's called simon this guy and i said so what what kind of thing do you do simon he said well i'm in the music business i said what are you are you an a and r or you do you have a label or something and he goes <laughs> well no i'm sort of sort of in a band and i suddenly thought is that horrible i went cold all over and i thought yeah. shit it's simon Le Bon, yeah playing it cool and i'd just been talking to him for 20 minutes 
and so I met Yasmin and everything else. It was, and he was such a nice man. He didn't, you know, give me a hard time about it at all. So that was a, a wonderful moment. But no, I think uh, I'm not ashamed to say that I love ABBA. I think ABBA is an absolutely brilliant band. I want to go and see their amazing at Avatar show. No, uh, the hologram show or whatever it yeah. is. You haven't seen it yet? No, because I, but, you know, a lot of people think it's really naff to like ABBA, but, you know, they write. I mean, I think they are in that pantheon along with the Beatles. I think they wrote a lot of wonderful, wonderful tunes and they're very dancey and, you know, who cares if the, the grammar's a bit weird sometimes? It's like, you know, I also love the fact, there's a very QI fact about ABBA, which is, do you know why they wore those weird clothes? No, but please tell me. Okay, it's a great story. So I think one of the girls had a a, a sister or something who's a costume designer, so that they, they knew how to do some really weird clothes. As a performing artist in Sweden the tax laws dictate that you can claim your clothes against tax and, you know, get for nothing, as it were, as long as they are not clothes that any normal person would wear in the street. Okay, so that's why they have these weird platform boots and you know, glittery things and so on, because and that, they got away with that. They say they could write it all off. Yeah. So we always end up with this uh, with this last question, and that is, um, first of all, thank you for speaking to me. It's a pleasure. How are you feeling right now? You just got back from um, your your weekend in Ireland, and it's a Sunday night in in London as we're recording this. How how you doing? Well, I have to say, Nick, truly, all the better for talking to you. It's been the most fun. I mean, I was in a good mood to start with, but I'm really, I was, you know. Sunday night is slightly apprehensive. You're getting off a flight. You know, we had a bit of a glitch getting uh, aligned in time zones and things. And you sort of think, oh, what on earth am I doing agreeing to do a podcast on Sunday night? And, you know, uh, and then I've got Monday, oh, I've got that to do. And But actually, it's been such a wonderful wander down memory lane talking to you it's been such fun and the, the, the what we've found in common and this is something and also your midlife crisis so i try to be and you know say harry and i both try to be open you just try not to hide stuff and you find yeah. if you are open people are open with you if you go through life i often say the best suit of armor is not to have one you know, we go through with this pathetic cardboard castle of the ego, looking out through the slits, hoping nobody finds out that we're not mm. really up to our job or, you know, our relationship isn't really working or we're not doing as well as we pretend. It's a bit pathetic, really. Once you sort of just say, OK, this is warts and all, this is how I am, everyone else confesses as well. And suddenly there's human contact, you know what I mean? And, of course, it's really what, all great music's about, isn't it? It's really, I think, the I think the classic pop song, for example, is a really happy tune about a very sad thing. Do you know what I mean? It's a lot of people brokenhearted, but you wouldn't think so from the tapping of your foot and the, the country exactly. music. It's a terrific. Yeah. You know, that's the sort of stuff. I love listening to country in my car. I used to, when I had one of the very first... Um, do you remember Sony Walkmans, the, the things sure. that you could... I had one of the very first of those, and I used to listen to country while I was skiing. It's the most fantastic thing because it's so rhythmic, you know, and you just sweep down the hill like that. 
but it's all about you know she left me and it ruined my life and you sure. know i had to shoot myself yeah and uh so and i love one of the things i love about music is what i try to do in comedy you know we have this in common which is we're both trying to cheer people up aren't we that's what we do for a living yeah make people yeah. feel a little bit better for the hour or so you're on air or two hours or whatever and the little half hours that i do we're just trying to cheer people up and you've certainly done that for me mate i tell you what a great way to spend a, an hour or so on on a sunday afternoon for me and thank you so much it's been brilliant, Lick, and, uh, you know, wonderful. Everything you've done has been such fun and so great, and thanks. It's been great getting to know you. Thanks, mate. The Sound of Success is hosted and produced by myself, Nick Harcourt, for Spark Network. Our theme music is by Keita Klein. For more episodes, find us on Spotify, Apple, sparknetwork.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. 